Harper Academic Calling, Honoré Fanon Jeffers. The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois is the sweeping and ambitious debut novel by Honoré Fanon Jeffers. In our conversation, Honoré called her book a kitchen table epic, and that's a phrase I entirely love and think is the one that best describes the scope of love songs. Ultimately, what we have is the story of Ailey Pearl Garfield and her family, from their black, enslaved, Native American expelled, and Scottish roots. We get the seemingly small details of this black American family's beginnings and life that is usually given such space in books by white authors. There is much trauma, but it is never spectacle. There is a lot of history from which we always learn. And ultimately, there are many kinds of triumphs. The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois is, though, a love song to and a celebration and uplifting of black women. That's what it is at its core, and that's why I think that it may just be the great American novel. One of the most joyous experiences I've had recording this podcast series is this conversation that I had with Honoré, and Love Songs is a book that I won't soon forget. The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Harper Books. So today on the podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome Honoré Fanon Jeffers, author of The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Honoré, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I have to say that I absolutely loved um, your book. This is your debut novel. It is a very big book. There's no way sort of getting getting uh, getting past how thick it is in terms of its page count. And it's such a... <laughs> It's such a rich, rich story. And I, and I know that sometimes people are um, a little bit intimidated when they see the, the width of a particular book. But the, it's such a rich and layered and detailed story. And it's a rich and layered and detailed primarily black women's story, which, mm-hmm. is, which is wonderful and which we certainly absolutely need much more of. So what was it like, um, if we could start off by you talking a little bit about what it was like to encompass this really sweeping multi-generational story, a story that tells the history of of a family. Um, What was it like to construct the narrative? How did you handle the the depth and the breadth of, of this family that you dealt with? Well, the first thing that I probably should say is that when I first began writing this story, this novel, which was about, uh, I guess, 2011 or late 2010, it was really only my intention to write a beach read. Okay, okay. And, and <laughs> now everybody's like, what? Well, yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, I hadn't really wanted to write a novel. I only liked writing short stories at the time. And my agent, Sarah Burns, Sarah Burns, you know, she was she just kept it real with me. And she said, there's no money in stories. You know, there's very little money in stories. And because I really liked Sarah, I made the mistake of promising her that I would write a novel. And so... um after I first tried to trick her that my uh, connected short stories were a novel 
and she was basically letting me know you're not fooling anybody so then i i was like okay i'm just gonna write you know write a light kind of uh chick lit beach read and let me say there's nothing i love chick lit right yeah there's nothing I mean, there's absolutely nothing there's wrong nothing with wrong with it nope. we look at jane austen she was 19th century chick lit yep, right absolutely so um and i revere her of course so um but then what happened is I began having dreams. I've talked about this before. I began having dreams. And in the dreams, people would come to me. And um, and after a while, I realized that they were the ancestors of the protagonist of the novel, Ailey Pearl Garfield. And so then that is when I understood that this was going to have to be a a much more expansive novel in vision. I hadn't yet imposed craft on it, but the vision was going to, when I realized that I was going to have to incorporate, because they were very insistent. These dreams were incredibly insistent. Um, and let's just also keep it real. You can't write a slavery beach read. True, very true. Um, or a beach read about Native American removal. So then when um, when I realized that, what I uh, began to do is simply take these more lyrical, dreamlike sequences that I had been writing down in, in, in um, notebooks and then I knew that I was going to have to craft this book that I could keep those ancestral portions. They weren't yet songs. I could keep those ancestral portions uh, separate from Ailey's story, but that everything had to come together at the end. Mm -hmm. That was maybe about 18 months into you know um and then the last part was when i began to impose um character uh development plot and all of that on these long lyrical portions i came to the realization that what was that there was going to be a problem with the book if there weren't these deep connections throughout the book um, that that I, I, I couldn't write just a completely separate section of the book through the songs and then have everything tied together. So then this was sort of the click moment. Mm -hmm. That is when I began mirroring portions of the songs into the modern day uh, uh, portion of Ailey's story. Um, and when I, when I began to really understand that this was not just a structural issue, but it was a vision issue, mm -hmm. was when things started going badly in the country. And, and, and that's when I understood that these, you know, you you can't separate what's happening in terms of race relations now from 
how this country was founded um, from, um, you know, uh, slavery. You know, there's a deep connection between the contemporary police state and slave patrollers and all of that. And that's when I began to not only look at craft, but also look at, okay, this it is an important story that I'm telling. Because it took me several years to accept that. Really? I, I, really? I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't really accept that it was an important story. My confidence was very low at times. I think there is just such an such an absence for the kind of book that you've written and you've really written one of the things that I greatly admire about it is that I had to work to read this book as a reader I am still thinking about the amount of work that I had to do to read this book and and in part that's because of um in part, I think it's because of the amount of trauma that is in the book. I found this um, at several times, especially with um, uh, Ellie's sister, Lydia. I found it very difficult, the emotional labor that had to go through the reading of it. I can only, I think, fractionally begin to imagine the emotional labor of writing something like that. Um, and also thinking about the scope and breadth of history um, and the personal detail we get to learn a lot of the minutia of personal detail in a lot of white people's lives throughout throughout reading books and things. But I really can't think of that many books about black women, um, about sort of the history of a, of a black family that go through. I don't mean to, I don't mean this at all pejoratively, but but the, the smallness of people's lives and um, what happens in quiet moments in, in quite the way that, that your book does. And for that, I think that it's it's absolutely wonderful. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work that you wanted a reader to do to read to read the love songs. Well, I feel like. um Whenever I approach writing a book, as you know, I I started off as a poet mm -hmm. and I continue to write poetry. But I think that there is a, a moment when you write that whoever you're writing for, whether you're writing for an academic audience, which I've certainly done before, or you're writing for... Um, you know, a more mainstream audience, I trust the intelligence mm -hmm. of my readers, not simply the, the, um, the sort of literary intelligence, but I also trust the emotional intelligence. Um, but one of the things is that I did not back down from the difficulties of what I was going to depict mm -hmm. because I wanted people to understand that when you pick up this book, you are picking up something that is attempting, you know, my readers decide whether I succeeded, mm -hmm. but that is attempting to give you a depiction of America writ large yep. through these 
detailed, small um, depictions. I have called the book a kitchen table epic because, you know. I like like that a lot, yeah. When we think of an epic, we think of the deeds of cisgender heterosexual white men. Um, And I'm just not interested in that. That has been done before. And that doesn't mean that that I I, um, haven't enjoyed reading those. But I was interested in writing a black woman's epic. But I knew that if I was going to really depict the women that I remember from my childhood, and then the women who had occupied my imagination through these stories um, that I had heard in my family, although I was very careful not to, you know, I believe it's, it's not ethical to, to take someone's life and pretend that you're writing about a fictional character. It's, it's, it's fine if you're going to just announce, I'm, you know, I'm writing about this historical character, right. but, you know, I just don't think it, it's right to shoplift somebody's life and, and put it on a page. I knew that I was going to have to write about what happened in small spaces. And so what we have is when you look at uh, the majority of the uh, transitional uh, or pivotal moments in the book, they take place in bedrooms, kitchens, cars, um, little, little, you know, dorm rooms, little small spaces, because that is still how the women, you know, that I know um, and that I've heard tell of, that's what we do. We look, we look each other in the eye one-on-one. We don't pull out a sword and start fighting with people. There is what you, what, what, you know, Southern women might call a parlor ambush, right? (laughs) You know, these sort of, um, uh, emotional assaults that take place. So these are emotional battles, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think about the, the trauma, the fact is, is that the, the nascent moment of African-American nation and community building mm-hmm. is a traumatic moment. Yeah, Absolutely. And so if someone wants to really delve into that, there is no way that you can avoid that trauma. That doesn't mean that that's all that black life is about. Uh, I also was very careful that I did not um, make trauma a spectator sport. So that when my characters encounter trauma, there is always a moment of self-interrogation about who they are or who they have become as a result of this trauma, whether they survive as human beings or whether they don't. I needed them to be able to name certain things because there is joy in naming. Particularly when you have been marginalized and people have told you that what has happened to you or to your culture or to your ancestors 
is merely a figment of your imagination. So in order for you, you know, when you claim the truth, despite people, you know, haranguing you to believe otherwise, that is a joy. That is a triumph, even if there's pain involved. So, and then the last thing is, um, you know, Everybody doesn't make it in this book. Yep. Okay. Yep. This is not a fairy tale. Nope. But those people who do make it, they come out on the other side. They they come out on the other side. And that's a promise that I needed to make to the reader that there was going to be, you know, um, I forgot which which uh which scripture it was like the name the title or the name of the scripture but there there's there's a a, a place in the bible uh, knowing that the bible is problematic for me as a radical black feminist um weeping may endure for the night but joy cometh in the morning yep and so I wanted there to be an intellectual joy because this is very much an intellectual book. I wanted there to be a spiritual joy. I wanted there to be an ancestral joy and I wanted there to be personal joy. And so that's the promise. That's the contract that I made with the reader that if the reader can travel through this, it's going to be all right on the other side. Yeah, and I think, and I think too, there's also this um, really wonderful, for Ailey, this really wonderful awakening of her autonomy as a black woman. And, and I think sort of along the way, we see, um, we see how that, uh, how black women's autonomy can be um, joyful in very different difficult moments in the in the novel but she seems to 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 really embrace it especially which i i loved because i know that it can be quite a difficult time to feel joyful about much of anything but i super loved how she sort of got that in graduate school um not necessarily from her graduate her graduate school experience because who does but but <laughs> <laughs> how she found I, I the best way that I would describe it is um, as she found joy and power and worth in herself as she sort of got through her grad school experience um, and to see sort of her her evolution as a character her her that she really had as you described before she really had these these genuine learning moments out of sometimes quite dark and awful awful moments. But she really, she is a character. I, I, I think of her. Um, I think of her with such with such fondness and and such love. And I wanted mm. I wanted so much joy and goodness for her at the end because there were times when I, when I genuinely worried about her as if she were like if she were a real person walking around. I like, wanted I wanted readers to worry about her. Yeah, I, you, I wanted readers to worry about her. I wanted readers to get annoyed or even angry at some of her life choices yep how many of us weren't messed up yep you yep. know and and that's what i wanted people i mean i i wanted people to see her growth and root for her yeah 
and say to her, girl, what are you doing? Yep. What is happening here? You know you're better than this. You know, I wanted people to to be concerned about her and to take her in their arms and rock her when she was going through these traumatic moments. I wanted all of that so that when we got on the other side, that people, you know, could say, you did that, girl. I see you, girl, you know? Yeah. Um. And so that, yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did that on purpose and I fought for that because there were times where some of the first readers were like, this is, this is problematic. Da, 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 da. This is, a, and I'm like, I know it's problematic. This is an epic journey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is an epic journey. You know, I mean, the same way we looking at, you know, Odysseus. And he messing around with women all on his journey while his wife is weaving at home. You know, I mean, and we're just like, wow, that's, 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 uh, that's important. Yeah. That's harsh. Yeah. You know, that this, this brother is doing all of this and his wife is holding it down, you know, and weaving, you know, raising his children and all of that, you know. And that's the thing, you know, nobody's like, well, you know, they're like, well, what this means is, or at least it was when I was in, you know, college or whatever. Maybe they, 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 they have a feminist approach to, to, to teaching it. So, yeah, that is, that is what, you know, what I, what I wanted. And, um, you know, I also wanted every, you know, every single character in the book is flawed. Yeah. The good characters, the yeah. ones that are, you know, the ones that we love, even Uncle Root. Yeah. And Uncle Root is, he's a good guy. Yeah, he, mean, seemed he, like a, a, he seemed like a truly cool cat. Yeah. He is a good guy, but yeah. even Uncle Root is flawed. You know, um, everyone's flawed. Uh, the horrible people are flawed, you know, um, and they, they, they have no real redemption. And then the really good people are flawed because every human being is flawed. There are no, you know, there are no, I didn't want any magical characters in the book. Although there are some who are magical in different ways, Yeah. but you know. Yeah. And something else um, that I wonder if you could talk a little bit about is there is an evolution in attitude towards rural black Southern um, tradition and experience as we go along throughout the book. Uh, there are people, uh, the people who live in Chickasetta in the book, um, really love it. Um, Ailey has to, she takes kind of a long way around in, in some ways um, about loving it. For a lot of people, right, there is there is always kind of this reckoning, I guess, with, with where they where they come from. Whether it's a hometown or whether it's, you know, sort of where your, your family is rooted and based that maybe there is a, is a sort of youthful sense of embarrassment or rebellion against it. And then maybe eventually you come to see, see the value of it um, and appreciate it um, more when you're an adult that you, you couldn't when you were a, a kid. What was it like creating those spaces? What was it, what was it like um, reckoning with, with that sort of journey of feeling? I think there are many African-American intellectuals who are from the deep South 
that initially experience embarrassment in childhood in adolescence young adulthood um about their rural origins um i think that that comes from not simply class uh issues mm-hmm. but also from the fact that the overwhelming um attitude when you enter white intellectual spaces is that the way that smart people are supposed to act and sound are completely at odds with where you have come from yeah what's interesting and i'm trying to be very careful here there are certain things i can talk about my uh personal experiences and then there are others that I'm I'm uncomfortable you know talking about but when I think about my own experiences when I look back for example at um recordings of myself speaking and reading poetry in the early aughts I don't have this same thick accent okay um, I have a bit of a draw, but it's clear that, you know, I just gave up trying to police the way that I sounded. Okay. Um, and definitely when I was in elementary school, when I was in high school, when I was in college, I really worked very hard not to have an accent. Um, and you know I I won't say when this happened or whatever but I remember there was a white female uh, academic that I I had been very good friends with and um, we were on the phone one day and she told me that uh, because sometimes I would code switch but there would always be a signal when I was going to do that, okay? Mm-hmm. I would even say things like, you know, uh, as my grandma used to say or what have you. Right. And she said to me, I really, I'm really concerned about you because when I hear you talk, you sound ignorant. Mm. And you're an African-American and... I can't remember anything after that because I was just like, wow, you know? Yeah. Uh, And that's all I'll say. And so I realized that it wasn't just race. um, It wasn't just class. It was an intersection of that. And then there's region. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, there were all kinds of crossroads occurring, you know, this intersection of vectors, uh, as it were, if I'm not mixing my metaphors. And, um, so I do think that, you know, Ailey is embarrassed, um, by her relatives, you know, um, you know, Miss Rose and the plastic on her furniture and all of that. But she's also safe. 
and she is free and she is loved and she is lifted up. She is a cocoa brown nudging against chocolate, you know, young girl. And nobody ever tells her in Chickasetta, you're pretty for a dark girl or anything like that. She is treated as if she is perfect Mm -hmm. in every way. And that is because at the end of the day, um, and sure, many of us are embarrassed, you know, um, I mean, I'm not embarrassed anymore, but I had to come into that when I would, you know, um, but at the end, I came into that in graduate school, ironically, when I would be confronting these white kids at, at, from the North, even though I was in an MFA program at University of Alabama, but the majority of these people were from the North or they were from the West Coast and they were cruel and they were bullies. and. And um, they nearly drove me to the brink of suicide. Uh, some of the professors did as well. So I felt the way that I regained my sense of intellectual agency, as well as cultural and racial agency, I hadn't yet claimed my agency as a woman was that I went back in my imagination to that space, to Putnam County, which is a real county. Mm-hmm. Chickasetta is not a real town, right. but, but Eatonton, Georgia and Putnam County, they are real. And that's how I reclaimed something. And I do, I feel like many of us black people we have a hard time when we enter those spaces and they will either break you or you will come out on the other side understanding that intelligence doesn't have to look a particular way. It doesn't have to sound a particular way, um, you know, and, and, and they'll either break you and there are some people I've seen broke. But as for me, you know, I remember my mama when I would call her and I'd be crying and they'd be saying stuff. And she would say to me, you better get some steel in your spine because this is going to continue. And that's what I did. I got some steel in my spine and I kept going. And um, and here I am. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is obviously a figure uh, who looms large uh, in the book that bears, mm-hmm. in, the, in the novel that bears his name. What a, what a shock right. that is. Right, in the title. Yeah, in the title. <laughs> uh, what, can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of Du Bois and his work? And for students who maybe aren't um, that familiar with his writing, you know, just beyond sort of what would be excerpted in like the Norton anthology. Um, what would you recommend that students read? Well, now we, we, we already know first, let me, for those people who aren't familiar, um, identify who WB Du Bois was. 
okay? He is considered to be the greatest black intellectual of the 19th and 20th centuries. For me, I consider him to be the greatest American intellectual, bar none. Some people might want to go to the mattresses on that, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they might want to throw hands, as the kids say about that. But that's the way I feel, uh, because I feel like his work was really trying to heal America. But also, he wrote in several different genres. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. And we're not just talking about creative writing genres. We're talking about history. We're talking about social science. Uh, um, we're talking about poetry. We're talking about short stories. We're talking about personal essays. I mean, so he just he just did so much. But he's the first African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard University. And so for some people, that is the most important point about him. But before he went to Harvard, he traveled from his hometown, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, down to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was a historically black college that had been founded to educate the children and the grandchildren of freed enslaved African-Americans. And so when he was at Fisk, as he has said, you know, in, in different uh, works of his, um, there was something about being in this all black space that he never forgot. And then later he came to Atlanta to teach at Atlanta University. He left Atlanta University, then he came back. So he really loved the Deep South. For me, my formative Du Boisian moment would of course be the souls of black folk. The souls of black folk actually, uh, and there I'm sure going to be some scholars who again wanna throw hands over this, is the first American modernist work that predates Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. It predates Ezra Pound's Day Imagist, okay? So um, I remember when I was in graduate school that they would always, you know, especially because it was, you know, um, a poetry, you know, uh, creative writing, and then my specialty was poetry, they would always hold up Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. But, you know, The Souls of Black Folks predates that. So that is, of course, his, you know, most well-known text. But I also feel like Dark Water is a very important text as well. It is hybrid. It um, So for, for students who are really interested in creative writing, um, it combines personal essay, it combines um, uh, historical analysis with fiction 
and poetry. It also uh, has moments of black feminism in the book. Um, so I think those two works, um, and then of course there's Dusk of Dawn, which is personal. But when we think of personal with Du Bois, we always have to think about how he combined the personal with the political. Yeah. And so those are the three texts that I think now for people that want a deep cut, you know, there's suppression of the African slave trade, you know, but that, but that's a little dry, you know, that's for somebody who's really committed, you know, yeah. to, to studying the boys. Well, I just have one more question for you. And it is a question that we ask all of our guests on our podcast. Okay. Um, since we are primarily doing this for an audience of teachers and their students who is your favorite teacher oh wow oh i had so many you can choose more than one well now i'm gonna say that my favorite teacher was my mother my mother actually was a professor of mine oh really at Talad yeah at talladega college um, I transferred from Clark College, which is now Clark Atlanta University, to Talladega College. Um, and so for the last two years of my college experience, she was my teacher and she took no prisoners. I remember her, there was something that I had turned in and it was my last semester of college. And she said to me, you think you cute but I will keep you from graduating. Oh, oh. Right. She, <laughs> she, 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 she didn't take no prison. Yeah. She's legendary at Talladega. I mean, I've had several people tweet at me and come up on my Instagram and be like, I was taught by Dr. Jeffers. I was taught, you know, I'm Professor Jeffers. She's because I only have an MFA. She's Dr. Jeffers. She's my favorite teacher, not only because of what she knew, right? My mother had a, uh, her bachelor's was in French um, literature. Um, and then she went on to do work in English. Um, but also, I think um, the way she stood for a moral integrity for the education of black people. I just remember from the time that I was a little girl because she was an elementary school teacher or may have been middle school, but there was a moment where we lived in Putnam County for a whole year because my parents had separated. And I just remember the kind of love that she put into the students. It's difficult now to teach with that kind of love. First of all, there are creepy people who have made it hard, but there's all also um, the students come in a lot of times with a sense of their own entitlement. Um, but when I think about my glory days before this past very incredibly difficult four years, um, and I will not 
mention he who shall not be named. It's like Voldemort in politics. <laughs> um, I led with so much love before I had to become afraid of the racism that my students had picked up from their parents and other people. Um, and that's, that's the way I always, I, it didn't matter that 99.9% .9 of my students were white. I gave them love. And they many times will contact me on social media. And I don't even remember that some of these kids, because I've taught so many, and they'll say, you did da-da-da-da for me. Or you said da 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 to me, and I will never forget it. And that's the kind of teacher I always wanted to be. And that's how my mama was. That's really, really lovely. Thank you so much for telling us that story. And thank you so much for joining us. It was really such a joyful time to have you on this podcast. I'm so glad that we were able to catch up. I just had such a great time. Thank you. You're I very, appreciate it. You're very welcome.